The scripture reading this morning is from 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 through 12. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So, death is at work in us, but life in you. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. We're looking at verses 1 through 22 this morning. So Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. Before I read that, we're going to, we need to back up and do a little bit of review. If you weren't here last week, we'll catch you up quickly. And if you were, we've just forgotten because the weeks are long sometimes, we'll catch you up there too. And here is what, what we have happening in Acts chapter three is Peter and John are heading towards the temple to pray. And a man comes who's been lame from birth, unable to walk. And he's out and he's begging for alms, asking for help. And he looks at them, they look at him make eye contact, and he thinks that they're going to give him money. And then Peter says, silver or gold I have for you. I do not have for you, but what I do have for you, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And immediately, this man is healed. And in the name of Jesus, this guy has a new life, and he is brought healing by the power of Jesus and faith in Jesus. That obviously stirs a big crowd. They go outside of the temple, and people are gathering around Peter, and he takes the opportunity to preach the gospel to them. He tells them that Jesus is the Messiah that was promised, that he did come, that he died on their behalf and rose again from the dead. And he tells them that they must repent and believe in his name. And if they do repent of their sins, their sins will be blotted out. The Spirit would come and fill them so that refreshing would come into their life through the presence of God. It says through the presence of our Lord. And that that would one day, Jesus would come back. And those are the promises he makes to them. And then he makes one more additional promise. He says, but if you reject them, if you do not believe this message, if you do not accept this prophet that Moses told you about who would come after him, who is Jesus, then you will be destroyed. And that's the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus is the Messiah, the good news that he did come. He died for sin. He rose again from the death. And if we repent of our sins and put our faith in him, we will be saved from our sin. And we will get to walk with God and God will walk with us and his spirit will dwell in us upon that belief and repentance. And if we reject him, we will rightly inherit the righteous judgment of God. We will be destroyed, which is what Peter tells them. And as he does that, we then have Acts chapter four, which is the fallout of that particular message. And I say fallout because that's literally what happens. What we have here is a great example of what faithful witnesses do, particularly in the midst of difficulty. And so that's what I've titled this morning's message is what faithful witnesses do. And I think there's just three things that we can glean from Peter and John in these 22 verses of what it looks like to be faithful in our witness to Christ, which is something we know from Acts 1 and 2, we're all called to be. How do I do that faithfully 
when things become difficult, when the heat gets turned up. And that's what we want to do as we walk through this passage this morning. So looking at Acts chapter 4, I want to read the entirety of our passage, which is 22 verses, beginning in verse 1 of Acts 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and, a number of, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas and the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or what, by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation and no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men and they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it, but in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them in and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they then let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For they were all praising God for what had happened. For the man whom on this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So in this recounting that Luke gives us in the book of Acts of what happens after this man is healed miraculously by in the name of Jesus, we want to see three things that faithful witnesses do. And the first one is this, is faithful witnesses persevere in the middle of conflict. Faithful witnesses persevere in conflict. These first four verses, we see that they were speaking to the people. As they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So after this guy is healed and people are gathered around listening to Peter preach, the religious leaders of the time, these Sadducees, the captain of the temple who would have had police basically at his disposal to keep things in order of the temple, and the other priests come upon them and they are greatly annoyed. They're really mad that this guy is preaching that there is a resurrection in Jesus because what are they mad about? They're not mad about the commotion. They're not mad that Peter and John use a weird tone of voice or that Peter and John are disrespectful. No, it says they're greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. 
They're mad because of the news of the gospel. Now, these Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection at all. They believed that when you died, your soul simply ceased to exist, and that was the end. And there was another sect of, of religious leaders, Pharisees, who would believe in a general resurrection, but they didn't like Jesus. So maybe they believed in a resurrection, but what they both agreed on is Jesus is not the way. And that these people we know in the Gospels actually came and conspired together to kill Jesus. And so they come now, and they're greatly annoyed, probably thinking, I thought we already took care of this problem when we cut the head off the snake. But we haven't. He rose from the dead, which became a big problem for them. And now these guys won't shut up. And they're greatly annoyed. And they're greatly annoyed because they're teaching and proclaiming the resurrection. And then in verse three, it says, and they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of men came to about 5,000. I want to pause there because I'll be honest with you, why we need to persevere in the middle of conflict. In my life, because I'm a sinner and because I like people to like me, I will sometimes have a negative experience in my teaching and proclamation of the gospel. And I will let that dictate whether or not I believe I was faithful. Well, someone got mad at me or they were uncomfortable because I asked them what they believed about God and that made them upset. So I must have failed. And I've been an unfaithful witness to the gospel. I've messed this up. But here we see Peter and John, they preach the gospel and their opposers are greatly annoyed. So annoyed to the point that they throw them in a holding cell for the night. They go to a temporary jail for a night so they can await trial. But verse four tells us, but many of those who had heard the word believed in a number, and the number of men came to about 5,000. That's a pretty positive result. Is God with them? Even though the man is greatly annoyed, God is blessing their ministry. Sometimes we will experience conflict in the midst of doing what God has commanded us to do. We can't allow the conflict to be the thing that dictates whether or not am I faithful or not. Are we faithful to the gospel message like Peter and John are? Are we faithful to do the things that God has told us to do? And will we persevere in those conflicts? That's what faithfulness looks like and that's what faithful witnesses do. They keep going even when other people are greatly annoyed and God blesses it. And it's even kind of vague. We don't know. Were they only counting the men? Sometimes that happened. And so maybe even more people were coming to know Jesus. Is this 5,000 additional people as opposed to the 3,000 that came to know Jesus in Acts 2? It's kind of vague. I don't know. But I'll tell you this. That's a lot of people in a very short amount of time. This is amazing. An amazing reality. He preaches the gospel. He gets personal. You killed him in Acts chapter three. And if you don't believe, God's gonna destroy you. He doesn't hold anything back. They persevere knowing that the, sometimes the message itself is offensive. They persevere in conflict. And this man who God is using, Peter, to preach, he writes a letter later to persecuted Christians. Christians who are spread throughout the world. 
who are being persecuted by being ostracized and kept away from what is true. And one of the things they're being persecuted for is they're just not living like the world around them. They're not joining in in sinful behavior. And so Peter writes this in 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19. He writes to these Christians, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Jesus, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of, for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, then what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter and John, we will see in the rest of our passage, they persevere in the middle of this conflict, but I want you to see it's not just because they're extra tough or extra special guys. It's Peter who denies Jesus in the book before this one. See, the resurrection is so meaningful in their life, and the resurrection from the dead of Jesus points to the reality that Jesus is also coming back. The resurrection is what they're preaching, and the resurrection is the very thing that helps them persevere. When Peter is writing to these Christians, he's telling to them to rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. He's talking about the second returning of Christ. You will be glad when he comes back if you bear up under the suffering now because that's what the resurrection means. The resurrection means that the tomb is empty. Christ is risen. He sits at the right hand of the Father and he is coming back. What are we living for? We cannot fear man. He says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. See, it's hard when we talk about persevering in conflict. I'm not very good at it. I get sick to my stomach. I don't like when people get angry at me. I don't like having to deal with the police like we even have even in Columbus of what it looks like to talk to people and explain we're not crazy. We're just inviting people to church. Whatever that looks like, but it does happen. I don't enjoy those moments. I feel uncomfortable, and I'm imagining you do too. But the secret to perseverance in the midst of conflict is to hold tightly to the gospel itself, and therefore let those who suffer, verse 19 of 1 Peter 4, according to God's will, to entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We must entrust ourselves to the one who is faithful. See, when we call to say, hey, persevere in the middle of conflict, it's not a call to just pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. That won't work. The call to perseverance in the Christian life is a call to put your faith in something outside of you. It's the call to recognize, if I'm left on my own, I will be too weak. I will give up. I won't proclaim what I'm supposed to proclaim. I won't teach what I'm supposed to teach. But if I entrust myself to a faithful creator and I rest not on my own faithfulness, but on God's faithfulness, that's how we become faithful witnesses.
when we look to the resurrection of Jesus and we say this resurrection power isn't just for the non-Christian. It's just not the entryway into the kingdom, but it's the kingdom. It's what we live for and it continues to speak truth and in, in life into our very lives. That's what we want to see. That's the power of the resurrection to help us persevere. So we must be ready to persevere in conflict because conflict is inevitable. Peter tells them, don't be surprised when this comes upon you. This will happen. Not because Christians are mean-spirited, but because Christians are clear. And when the gospel is presented clearly, it's offensive. See, to be a faithful witness, looks at our second things that we must do is we must speak with clarity. To be a faithful witness, we must speak with clarity. We have a great example of that with Peter. As they are pulled in, the high officials, and this would be a terrifying moment, uh, Caiaphas and, and Annas, these, these men are mentioned in the gospels as people who presided over the trial of Jesus, the false trial at night. Now, apparently they don't want to pull that thing again, so they let Peter and John not have a trial in the middle of the night, and they let them go to the next day. Maybe that saves their life. Who knows? But, but Peter and John know what's up. These two guys, they're killers. They killed Jesus. They manipulated their political system and ensured that Jesus died. Now, we know that happened according to the will of God, but these guys aren't people to mess around with. When they're brought into the situation, it's not a slap on the wrist. This is, these are guys who have killed someone they love and they know. This would be a terrifying moment. They're probably in a semicircle. That's the, the normal way this trial would have happened. And so like, you're literally feeling surrounded by people who you know, and they're gonna ask. They're gonna ask them the question that we know what the answer is to. They're gonna ask them, by what power and by, why, and by what name did you do this? Now in Acts 3, Peter has just like thrown it down. What I give to you, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. And now, now get up and walk. You, you read that. If you're reading through this book, you've read that. They talk about it more and he's like, in the name of Jesus, he hits it again in Acts chapter three. And so this question gets answered. And as you're reading it, Luke is a really good author and he's telling you the story. And I believe that this is, is how it happened. But the beauty of how the Bible works, you know what the answer is before you read the next verse. You know what Peter's getting ready to say. You feel the tension rising. And you're like, uh-oh. What is going to happen? I know what he's going to say. I don't know if John's sitting there like, I know what he's going to say, man. Like, here we are. We're totally surrounded. These dudes killed Jesus. And they just ask him about what power and name are you going to do this? I know what he's going to say. And what does Peter say? Peter, the same guy who denied Jesus, fearful, scared. Then Peter, verse 8, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This is Jesus, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. That's pretty clear. There's no guessing 
Who did it? By what name was this guy healed? Who gave you the authority? They're asking that question because they're the, they are the authority of the temple. And they, and they know we didn't give you the authority to do this. So whose name are you doing this in? Because you're not doing it in ours. You're not doing it in our authority. And Peter is so crystal clear. And here's the thing that's happening in the backdrop. It's Peter loosely quotes Psalm 118, 22. He loosely quotes, he's the stone that the builders rejected. Who's you? And he's become the cornerstone. And here's the thing about that situation is, is the gospel of Mark, and, and it's recounted in, in Matthew as well, but in the gospel of Mark, what church tradition teaches us is that is the, uh, the gospel that is most likely Peter's account of, of what happened, okay? So I think that's important for what I'm getting ready to connect here. In the gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 12, these group of religious leaders come to Jesus and they, and they ask him, by what authority are you doing these things? And they question Jesus about his authority. And Jesus looks at him and he says, I'll answer your question if you answer my question. Where did the baptism of John come from, man or from heaven? And these guys are cowardly, and so they don't answer the question, and Jesus says, fine, then I'm not answering your question. Because Jesus was going to say, if, if John's baptism came from heaven, he's the one in the wilderness crying out, prepare the way, I'm the Messiah, I'm doing it in my own authority. I'm doing it in the authority from the Father. That's what Jesus is going to tell them. But they're cowardly. They don't want to hear the true answer, so they don't answer. So Jesus doesn't answer them back. But here's what Jesus then does. N very next passage, Jesus tells a parable. He says, there's this vine, this vineyard owner. He owned a vineyard and he bought it. He prepared it. He did everything to make it uh, flourish and thrive. Then he goes away to a far off country and he, get, and he gives it out to these tenants. When it's time for the vineyard owner to collect on his portion of the harvest, which it was due to him, he sends a servant and the tenants beat the servant and send him back. So he sends another servant. And this time they beat him just a little more severely and they send him back. And so he sends a third servant and they beat him even more, including beating him on the head, which is to show the severity just a little bit more. And so the, vine, uh, the vineyard owner says, well, they've beaten my servants. I'm gonna send them my son and we'll see what they do. And they send him his son and they kill him. The tenants kill the son. And Jesus says, what do you think will happen? And they say, the vineyard owner is going to come and he is going to display his wrath. And Jesus said, that is right. That is what's going to happen. There'll be wrath on the people who killed their son. And then the text tells us that the religious leaders perceived that he was telling the parable against them. Real perceptive. Yeah, that's exactly what he did. The servants were the prophets that came before. The servants were people like John who got beheaded. That's who the servants were. And Jesus is saying, and I'm the son. And in that, it says they perceived that he told the parable against them and they conspired to kill him. Mark chapter 12. And at the end of that parable, Jesus gets to the end of that parable and Jesus quotes Psalm 118 verses 22 and 23. He says, the, the stone that the builders rejected will become the cornerstone and that we would rejoice in that. He quotes that to them. Peter is there. Peter recounts that story when Mark is writing this gospel to him. Peter, around these same guys in a semicircle, looks them in the eye, says, Jesus, who you crucified, who God raised from the dead. And then he looks at him and he says, the stone that the builders rejected, you. You rejected him. He's the cornerstone. That's clear. That is really, really clear.
In a matter of weeks, that event I just told you about had just happened. They're not forgetting about that. They don't forget about the time they questioned Jesus' authority. He made them look foolish in front of everybody, and then they said, hey, I want to kill him. They know the law better than any of us in here ever will. They know what Jesus quoted. They're going to remember. And that guy quoted Psalm 118 to us. And Peter looks at him, filled with the Holy Spirit, and he tells him exactly whose name they healed this man in. The one you killed, the one God raised, the stone that you, the builders, rejected. He is the cornerstone. That is crystal clear clarity. And then, just to make sure they're not missing anything, Peter says this in verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And he is telling them, this is your only chance to be saved, is in the name of Jesus. We all get frustrated when a politician is asked a question, what do you think about the economy? And they answer, we all want a better economy. We also want better at school, so we're going to increase the education budget. What about the threat of nuclear war? Their answer, we have too much infighting in Congress, so I'm going to go across the aisle and present an olive branch with our new bill about infrastructure. Why are we so frustrated with those answers? Because they're unclear. They don't make any sense. But that's also, while we might be frustrated, you know why they answer that way? Because they're going to save their own hide instead of their cause. Because clarity will bring offense if you have to just answer clearly. If you don't want to offend anybody in your witness, the best thing you can do is be unclear about the gospel. If your goal is to make people happy with you, don't be clear about the reality that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Don't be clear about the truth that, hey, if you accept him, you, you will, you, your sins will be blotted out. The Holy Spirit will fill you. But if you reject him, you'll be destroyed. You'll never offend anyone if you're just unclear. If you just find ways to skirt around questions, but let me tell you, with a gentle tone of voice, with kindness in your heart, not trying to stir up things, not for the sake of, uh, don't be, uh, this is not a license to, to be mean-spirited. We are to be gentle and kind. That's what Peter, we read that last week in 1 Peter 3. He tells them when people ask about your hope, respond with respect and with gentleness. But Peter's also clear to those Christians, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes to you. Because if we're clear about the truth of the gospel, persecution will come. It is our goal. We can't, re we can't control the results. What we can control is our faithfulness to the message, to work hard to be clear about how it is we can be made right before God and what God does promise to us. And to teach and proclaim that in this world to do that with consistency, you will need the third thing that we can talk about what it looks like to be a faithful witness. You will need to resolve to act with courage. You will need to resolve to act with courage. Verse 13, it says, Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished 
and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. This is to say they did not have formal instruction in matters of religion. They were not going to sit on this council. These guys were fishermen when Jesus called them. But that doesn't mean they didn't get any instruction. I do want to be clear about that. It doesn't say they were just normal men and they never did anything to try to learn. No. What's it say? They were normal, common men, but who were they with? They were with Jesus. They spent time with Jesus. What do you need to be faithful in this world? We need Jesus. We spend time with Jesus in his, his word. That's what we need. It's not an excuse to say like, well, God used ignorant people, so I'll just willy, willfully be just, I don't want to know anything. Like, no, die, this is what you need. You don't need the seminary degree. You don't, this is what you need. The context of local church, faithful preaching right here from the word of God. And you will have what you need because you will be with the words of Jesus and in that with him. And his spirit will live in you. See, as they, they go through that, they, they look and they see this boldness in Peter, the guy who, I mean, you just can't get it out of your head. He's the guy who denied Jesus three times, once to like a servant girl. Like he could probably take her, right? Like, he, what's she gonna do? And he denies her. He, he just, that's who he was, but now he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's different after the resurrection. He's different after Pentecost when the Spirit of God indwells in him. He's changed but these men have not changed. These people who, who were a part of the trial of Jesus, these religious leaders, they haven't changed, even though Peter has. And so what do they do? They confer together, our text tells us, in verse uh, 16, and they say to each other, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. You know why we have to resolve to act with courage? Because that's ludicrous. It is evident to everybody in this entire city that a work of God has just happened. Their job, their literal job, is to point people to God. They are the religious authority and counsel. That's what they're supposed to be doing. And their idea, their thought is, wow, this really evident, obvious thing that we cannot deny that God just did, let's make sure it doesn't happen anymore. That's nuts. Why would you do that? Because they're selfish. They want the power. They don't want to point people away from their self and towards Jesus like Peter has been doing in Acts 3 and 4. Peter does this miracle in Acts 3 and he says, hey, 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 not by my power, not by my, by my piety, name of Jesus, that's who it is. They don't want to do that. We live in a world where sometimes the truth is just so evident. It's right before them. It, it, they can't deny it. I mean, they, they'll say it even themselves, and yet the response will be, I don't want that, Jesus. Get that out of here. We got to find a way. We got to threaten them. We got to tell them, you can't do that, even when it's abundantly clear and evident. That happens in our world. 
That's why you need courage. It's not, because you don't need courage if all you have to do is reason with somebody and then they figure it out and okay, we're all good. That's easy. That doesn't take a lot of courage. You need courage when you know, I will be gentle and meek and kind and winsome to the best of my ability and they will still reject me because they will reject Christ who is in me. I will make things obvious and clear as I possibly can. It's evident to everybody in the entire city. They themselves in their own words say, and we cannot deny it. They cognitively know this is a work of God. In verse 22, it says, because he was 40 years old. For 40 years, this guy couldn't walk. Walks at the name of Jesus. They can't deny it. And yet, they want to suppress the truth. Romans 1 tells us that the unbeliever, the unbelieving world suppresses the truth in their unrighteousness. Sin is pervasive and it is violent. When we allow sin to rule us, we will not allow the good news of the gospel to penetrate in, and it will get put down in violence. And so we will be required to resolve to act with courage. And that's exactly what we see Peter and John do. In verse 19, Peter says this, or excuse me, Peter and John. Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you, Rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. That's what faithfulness do. Faithful witnesses speak to what they've seen and they've heard. They resolve to act with courage in the middle of being threatened after spending a night in a holding cell, looking at the guys who killed their teacher, killed their friend, killed their Lord. And they say, you guys have to do what you're going to do, but we're going to do what we're going to do. You have to do what you think is right in your eyes. And if you think that's putting us down, then that's what you got to do. But we will testify. We will be witnesses to what we have seen and what we have heard. Because that's what faithful witnesses do. So as we wrap up this morning, the question is this, is will you do these things? When we share the gospel, when we experience these things, will we persevere in conflict? Will we speak with clarity? Will we resolve to act with courage? See, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want to do that for you this morning. I want to speak as clearly as I can to you right now. I want you to know that this passage is true. There is no other name by which you might be saved other than the name of Jesus. That God is the creator of the world and he is holy and he is different than all of us. That he made us to glorify him. And instead of doing that, we rebelled against him and we sinned. And God must righteously punish our sin. Something must make it must take on that debt for us. 
But God, rich in mercy, sent his son, Jesus, to come and live a perfect life on our behalf, die for our sins in our place, whom we've crucified, and then God raised him up from the dead so he would conquer sin and death. And as they've said in the book of Acts, that demands a response. You have to hear that truth and you must repent and put your faith in Jesus. You must turn away from your sin, put your faith in Christ and resolve to follow him with your life. And one of those first things that you would do in following him would be be baptized. And a part of that, it means you're joining a local church because you're saying, I'm not in the world anymore. I'm gonna be here. Understanding the things that those, that doesn't save you, but it is evidence that something has happened supernaturally in your heart. And God is calling you to himself that you might repent and believe. I want to be very clear. And if you reject that, if you reject the prophet that Moses talked about, the Bible says, and I have no pleasure in saying this, but God's holy wrath is stored up for all who do not follow Jesus. And God, to satisfy his wrath, will pour out his wrath on sinners and they will spend an eternity separated from God and in a place called hell. And there's only one way to escape that and that is through Jesus. And we talk about his name, we don't just mean his syllables, we mean by his power and by his authority, by his very character and who he is. We sing that song, oh, what a beautiful name it is. We're not talking about the syllables. We're saying what's beautiful, his authority is beautiful. His authority in my life is beautiful. What's beautiful is his lordship. What's beautiful is his saving uh, grace. That's what's beautiful because that's what his name all encompasses is his very character and nature. And you must put your faith in Jesus. At the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua is a leader of the people of Israel. And he starts to recount their experiences and he talks about these three different times and he, and he actually uses these things, of these, these bodies of water to kind of uh, mark this off. And he talks about uh, the Euphrates River and, and Abraham, how he was on the other side of the Euphrates River serving false gods, the Chaldean gods, but then God called him to serve him and he says and he crossed that river and he started to serve the one and only true God. And then he says, and then you, you were in Egypt, a land of false gods. And we were on the other side of the Red Sea, but God parted the Red Sea so that you could come through it. And then he used that to judge and destroy his enemies. And he talked about the plagues that happened and those plagues would correlate. They correlated with various Egyptian gods. And so Joshua was talking to me saying, listen, they, they were on this other side of this body of water. That's where you were. And you were, so, you were serving these false gods, but now God has brought you out to this side of the Red Sea and you are to serve him and him alone. And then he says, and we were on the other side of the Jordan River. And we, had, and we saw the Amorites, this group of people who served false gods and God delivered us from the Amorites and he brought us across the Jordan River. And he's using these bodies of, meta, uh, of, of water as a metaphor, even though they're literal things, as he addresses these people as a leader and he's basically saying, what side of the river are you on? Because we're getting ready to go into the promised land. This is what God has delivered us from. And even after the Amorites, he starts listing off all these different peoples that God has delivered them from, these people who serve false gods. And he's saying, that's who you used to be. You were on that side of the river, but God, by his grace, has brought you onto this side to no longer serve false gods and live your own way, but now to serve him and live his way. 
And then Joshua says in Joshua 24, verse 14, he says, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the God your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What Peter says in Acts chapter four, verses 19 and 20 in John is the same kind of declaration. They look at these men who should know They say, listen, you've got to do what's right in your own eyes. But as for us, we are going to bear witness to what we have seen and we've heard. And what you do is between you and God. So you can threaten us to not preach in the name of Jesus, but we're going to keep preaching in the name of Jesus because we have to do what's right before God. When Joshua looks at these people, he says, listen, I can't drag you across the river. You will either serve false gods, but me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord. And that's what I want to say to you this morning. What side of the river are you on? Are you still prone to those old ways, serving the false gods of your old life, or are you going to cross the river and you're going to live God's way and serve him? in only the way that he can do because he's the one who calls us out of, light, out of darkness and into light. 